Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. Also, thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through till 11. We've got you now until 12. In the virtual studio, I should say, with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Ah, uh, fantastic. Self-haircut. Didn't turn out that poorly. I'm... Um, Living the dream. <laughs> also on the line is uh, Dr. Ailey. Good morning, Ailey. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? Good. You're cooking, cooking stuff up, many biscuits, sourdoughs, yeah. all we sorts have, of stuff. I was going to say, we've got the sourdough happening in our house, though. I have to say we were sourdough people before the whole thing, yeah. lockdown thing. So, you know, we got it in before it was cool, you know. Yeah, I'm happy, I'm happy with a muffin. You know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I was happy with a muffin before. The yeah, I'm lockdown. happy with a lot of junk food these days. I yeah. have to say, it's, uh, yeah. not good for the waistline, but anyway. Indeed, and coming from a, a much further away away is Stacy. Good morning, Stacy. How are you going? Hi, Dr. Shane. Hi, team. How are you going? Good. Now, I hear in the news segment today you're not going to talk about COVID nineteen. This sounds very special. <laughs> going to be radical. Well, avoid all COVID news. We've got uh, a number of guests uh, coming on the show a little bit later, folks, but uh, we're going to start off with some news for you. So, Stacey, why don't we start with you, given uh, as such an epidemiologist in data and just nonstop working on COVID, this must be a special treat for you to talk about something that isn't COVID. It is. Um, there's been some really cool stuff coming out about COVID lately, but um, it was quite refreshing to turn my mind to something else. So, um, I, I stumbled across a study about CRISPR gene editing, um, out of Sichuan, China, um, it was published in Medicine a couple of weeks ago. Now, I'm assuming, um, Dr. Ian, you've been talking about CRISPR gene editing on the show over the last few years, is that right? Oh, yeah, CRISPR. I, it makes me think of potato chips, but I know what you're talking about. It's this, this special <laughs> way that scientists can make quick, dirty and cheap changes to, uh, to our genome or, or any genome. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, it's like a new form of gene editing, and it allows scientists to target and delete undesirable genes, uh, and therefore their traits or their expressions um, from cells. So it's not um, gene editing is not obviously new, but what's so revolutionary about CRISPR gene editing is, is that it is faster and cheaper and more precise. Mm. Um, and so most studies have explored the use of this technology in animal and plant models. So in the plant world, it's got the potential to be used much like traditional genetic modification, um, for example, making crops more tolerant to environmental stresses or more resistant to disease. And in humans, it's got potential applications in things, um, a single gene sort of diseases, so things like uh, Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease. Um, but it's also been considered for more complex conditions such as cancer, which is sort of the the, um, the, the, the study's um, focus today. So what this study was is one of the first human phase one clinical trials of the CRISPR gene editing um, uh, function for immune cells in patients with um, lung cancer. So phase one clinical trials are the ones that um, look at the safety of a new therapy in mm -hmm. a small group of patients. So, you know, how well the new therapy is being tolerated and if there's any identified um, adverse effects. And essentially what the researchers did here was um, hypothesising that editing a particular gene in our immune cells, specifically in our T cells, could be therapeutic against lung cancer. 
So T cells have an important functionality, so they help them attack abnormal cells such as cancer, but also to avoid our healthy cells. And so how that works is that T cells will express a particular protein on their surface, um, and then our normal healthy cells have like a complementary protein that binds to it, and essentially it sends a signal to the T cells saying, don't attack me. But um, the cancer cells, some cancers, have also figured out a way to exhibit those complementary proteins, so it evades the immune response. And they think this is what's happening in um, these particular types of lung cancers. So what these researchers did was um, did some gene editing of a person's own immune uh, T cells. So they harvest these T cells from lung cancer patients, use this CRISPR technology to sort of delete off that responsible protein from the T cells and then reinfuse those T cells back into the patients. So the theory being that the cancer cells could no longer form that complex um, with the returned T cells and therefore could no longer evade the immune response, mm. which is pretty cool. Yeah, that would be really interesting if that works. Well... Uh, good question. So, yes, uh, they did it in the, just in um, safety of about 22 patients enrolled. I think 12 ultimately received the edited cells. They infused all these T cells back every 28 days for three rounds and then monitored the safety. And the good news is, is that they found that it was really well tolerated. So they had minimal side effects, so things like fever and rash and fatigue. Mm -hmm. But they weren't able to demonstrate that therapy slowed or stopped disease progression. But, I mean, the study wasn't really geared up to do that. But um, essentially what they were able to conclude, which is, a, you know, a big step in the right direction for CRISPR technology, is that um, using this technology for T cells or in immune cells in a clinical setting is indeed safe and feasible. Um, obviously, we've got to do some more research to look at the efficacy of this therapy in preventing disease progression, but it's certainly a, a good step in the right direction for this um, novel technology that may have um, pretty good potential therapeutic yeah. potential. Yep, yeah. it's it's a it's a brave new world with CRISPR, I think, and I have to say, I'm uh, I'm interested and scared, and hopefully, uh, I'll be more interested as time goes on, less scared. But it's certainly a powerful tool that we can we can utilize. Dr. Ray, what do you yeah. got for us? So, uh, Dr. Shane, I have an interesting story that we didn't know this, I think, before last week, that bees are very special and good at gardening. And I said bees, not, mm. not people, little bumblebees. And so researchers at Zurich had discovered that bees have a conundrum because they come out of hibernation based on climate. Yet most plants flower based on mostly light. And so you can get this disconnect when bees start out that the Plants that they want to flower might not be in bloom when they really need to start eating. And, and so you think, oh, do bees just kind of tough it out, tighten their bumblebee belts and move on? But no, they actually have put, punch these very particular specific little holes in plant leaves. And they do this to plants uh, with their little mandibles, and it's a very specific little hole. And it can cause the plant to flower as much as 30 days earlier than if it hadn't had these little holes in the leaves. Hmm. And so these researchers actually were very systematic about it. They did it with commercial bees and wild colonies. They first did it with bumblebees, but then they actually found it. They also found that if you have pollen, um, excuse me, pollen limited or pollen scarce hives, and even regular European honeybees will do this, where they actually will actually, they, they just know to poke the flower on the, on the plant's leaves in a very particular way. But you have to have the bee special touch. Because the researchers tried to duplicate it with razor blades and tweezers, and they really couldn't drive the plants to flower earlier to nearly the same extent that the bees did. Hmm. That's, a biz it, that's it's, bizarre, isn't it? Bizarre outcome. It's just yeah. bizarre because 
There was no hypothesis. This was more of just an observational study. And they said, will you look at that? Mm. Uh, Dr. Ailey, you uh, had your hand up? I was well, what's causing that? I mean, are the holes allowing more surface area for the leaf or something? And so they're getting slightly more light? So they flower earlier? What? Yes. So this hasn't... So it, the observations seem pretty solid, but the whys are very confusing here because there there's speculation. So the bee doesn't really eat, have enough time because it pokes the hole really quickly to really derive much nutrition from it. There's a suggestion the bees are either really good at knowing where to poke the leaf hole, or there may be some type of chemical exchange between the bee and the plant that they couldn't capture. Um, they're also unsure on quite how it happens because is this a learned response or an evolutionary one? Because gosh, it's specific for, for an evolutionary born knowledge. Mm. Although bees do communicate a lot, but I mean, the life, the time frame over which the flowering can change can also be longer than the lifetime of a worker bee. So there has to be some type of communication and learning between the bees. Um, yeah. And they don't really have a great idea as to why just yet. Yeah, but, no, uh, it's certainly that, that whole time thing is an interesting one. Like how you get, get around that argument is, is tricky, isn't it? Like it's not like the bees are necessarily strategizing for tomorrow when they're not yeah. going to be around. There's going to be something extra going on. And, and it's possible bees have been doing this for a long time, but it's only mm. with climate change and us notice the seasons are moving that people have thought, well, how does this I impact um, insects that require pollen mm. or that are pollinator insects? Mm. Very interesting stuff, Ray. Thank you. Uh, doc, speaking of climate change, our climatologist, one of our two climatologists, Dr. Ailey, what's going on? Dr. Shane, I've got some, uh, I'm the one that's actually going to be talking a little bit about COVID-19 this week. Though I'm oh. not actually talking about the virus itself i have to say okay i'm talking about consequence but this is actually a little bit of a silver lining um for climate change that's that's come about it's quite shocking actually and this has come from a rapid fire study that was uh published in nature climate change on tuesday uh by uh, dr corinne lecoeur from the university of east anglia and colleagues where they um you know were in lockdown like a lot of the world and kind of went huh no one's driving their cars no one's flying. Wonder what this is doing to CO2 emissions. So they had a look. So they managed to gather some data and they looked just for April because April was kind of the peak lockdown for a lot of these places. Uh, they looked at 69 countries. They uh, looked, that included the US and uh, 30 Chinese provinces as well. I don't think they looked at the, all of China, but um, they looked at a lot. Uh, basically, the areas that they looked at are, uh, have 85% of the world's population and are responsible for 97% of the world's carbon emissions. So mm. basically... All of it, yeah. Effectively, the entire world's carbon emissions. Right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and what they found was that when nobody was driving and nobody was flying, <clears throat> this has had a big impact on global carbon emissions. So they found a 17% drop in average daily global carbon emissions in April. Hmm. Uh, now, this was pretty much all due to surface and air transport, uh, less so on manufacturing and things because that kind of stuff is continuing. So um, basically what that equates to is about 18.7 million tonnes and that aligns really well. It's about uh, putting us back to about 2006 Hmm. levels 
okay? So in some sense, that's a bit scary that 17%, that's how much we've increased since 2006. Yeah. Like doesn't seem like that long ago. Um, but it, it's, it's also really interesting. They looked at some of the specifics. They examined the drops compared to the relative severity of the lockdown and they found that um, those countries that had the really super strict lockdowns, you know, people weren't allowed outside except for essential services workers, that kind of stuff. So you're talking Spain's, Italy's, that UK, that kind of place, uh, even parts of the US and uh, China, they had huge reductions. So where they had the most severe lockdowns, they had um, 50% decreases in CO2 emissions due to cars, 75% reductions in CO2 emissions due to air travel. Um, and in those places that had the strict lockdowns, emissions total fell by more like 26% on average rather than 17%. So, I mean, it kind of shows you how the contribution that, that transport has to this problem. And the interesting thing is that they basically uh, postulated that if everything kind of reopened in June, it would still equate to an annual 4% drop in carbon emissions. And if uh, restrictions persisted in some form of another quite strict to the end of the year, that would equate to, they reckon, up to 7% drop globally. Hmm. Uh, for the year. Um, now, two things about that. That's the biggest drop since World War II, possibly ever. Um, and the other thing about that is, interestingly enough, that's about the kind of drop we need year on year to reach the Paris Agreement. Oh, boy. So, yeah. reach that 1.5 degree, it shows you how big our drops in our reductions in emissions need to be. So, look, all I can say is I hope that uh, governments are considering when things are opening back up and trying to get economies yeah. moving again, move towards the green economy and the way to go. But, uh, yeah, we'll see about that. You just need anyway. to keep people, keep people off the streets, keep them locked up and we'll be fine. It's people that are the problem, <laughs> I'm telling you, people. Uh, yes. Team, great to, great to chat to you. We're going to have to go to a break uh, before we get our first guest on the line. Thanks so much. Uh, good to see you all. Looking forward to seeing you back in the studio at some stage, but uh, great chatting. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Thanks, guys. Bye. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. And on the line now, we have Bonnie Teese. Bonnie is a PhD candidate in astrobiology and biogeochemistry at the Australian Centre for Astrobiology at the University of New South Wales. Bonnie, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working on uh, something that's super interesting, but I suspect a lot of people haven't heard of all of the components of this yet. First being the fact that NASA is considering or, you know, working on putting a new rover on Mars. So before we get into your work, tell us a little bit about this new one, which recently, I believe, got named Perseverance. <coughs> Yeah, that's right. So the Perseverance rover is actually scheduled to launch quite soon. The launch window is between uh, July and September of this year, which is quite exciting. And um, the unique thing about the Perseverance rover is the rover is actually equipped with sample return tubes because NASA is planning on, for the first time ever, returning rocks from Mars to Earth for us to study or for them to study here on Earth, which is really, really exciting. So the rover will go to an area called Jezero Crater, mm -hmm. and that's a um, fossilized lake bed in the Lacustrian system. And so the rover will investigate the rocks there um, using a myriad of techniques and tools. So they'll look at the geochemistry, um, they'll look at the rocks themselves, they'll look at organic molecules if there are any, 
um, and try to find out more about what we know in Mars. Mm. So I remember, you know, reading up years ago about some of the Apollo missions, especially especially the the later Apollo missions to the Moon, and the astronauts who were not geologists of any type had. Well, actually, I think Brian um, David David Schmidt was it one of one of them was eventually, but they weren't geologists and they had to work out you know how to train these guys to collect the right rocks but we're talking about an automated scenario here how do we make sure that the the new rover is going to dig up the right bits i mean there's only so much you can see on a on a monitor yeah you really touched at the heart of um the research that i recently published there and that's we can't look at every single rock on mars you know there's a time delay when the rover sends information back to earth which can vary from 8 to 22 minutes, depending on how far apart Mars and Earth is. So if you want to send a command to the rover, you might send it. It'd take 20 minutes to get to the rover. The rover would perform the action, and it would take 20 minutes to get back to Earth. Mm. And so the rover, by nature, is semi-autonomous and learns. And so the rover needs to know how to look for those rocks, which might be the best preservers of science of life. And that's why it's really important that we understand how the different instruments on the rover work together and what kinds of information it can give us about the rocks so that we know which rocks might best preserve signs of life. Mm. And so if you're, and this I, I suppose is where your work's come in, if you're going to mimic these studies or try and demonstrate the validity of some of these studies here on Earth, um, apparently the place to do that, uh, according to your work, is in South Australia. Yeah, that's right. So um, this particular work was in South Australia at the Flinders Ranges, which is a great place to uh, study analogous environments to Mars. But I also do a lot of work in the Pilbara Creighton in Western Australia. And the Pilbara is a really unique place. And the Pilbara holds rocks that are 3.5 billion years old. Mm -hmm. And these are some of the oldest rocks that preserve life in the entire world. And so Australia is very often used as a site in which we can study analogues to Mars because we have old rocks, they're dry and they're dusty, and it's just a really arid type of environment. So it's quite similar to Mars in that way. And the older the rocks are, the more likely that the life that we find there would be similar to Mars because once upon a time, very, very early in Mars' history, Mars was warm and wet. And so if we study really old rocks on Earth, then we get an idea of what Mars might have been like very early in its history. Hmm. I mean, one huge difference, uh, obviously, between Mars now and Earth now when you're doing these studies is the difference in atmospheric conditions and temperature. How do you, so how do you compensate for that when you do these studies? Because I can imagine even if you use the exact same instruments in both locations, the, the scenario would be very, would be very different. Yeah, that's right. So one uh, benefit, I guess, is that when we're looking for life on Mars, it's fossilized life. So we're looking for life that's uh, captured inside the rocks, this sort of a snapshot of a place back in time. And so the atmosphere at that time would have been similar to Earth. Um, increased radiation, destroying rocks, or um, no atmosphere, so different gravity. Um, the rocks that we're looking at at one point in time were very similar to, to Earth. Now, there are areas in Earth um, that are similar to Mars, more similar to Mars for those reasons. Like El Tadio in Chile is um, a very high environment. And so it's so high that water boils at a different temperature and there's different amounts of UV. So rocks might be studied from El Tadio for those reasons. So we try to find 
different places all over Earth that sort of come together to create a picture that's similar to Mars. Mm. Um, what sort of thinking went into the selection of the site um, to go searching for on Mars? I, I can imagine there must be a balance between areas where, I suppose, upheaval has moved things around so you can see stuff that was there long ago, just as we would we would dig, you know, look in mines and so forth to, to, to find, you know, his, the history of, of, of our planet. Presumably, we have to find similar scenarios without digging them ourselves uh, on Mars. Yeah, so the Flinders Ranges is really important um, place to study because the Flinders hold some of the best preserved packages from a time period called the Cambrian. And the Cambrian is just after animals sort of exploded into evolution and started living all over the world. So prior to the Cambrian period, the world was dominated by microbes for 2.7 to 3 billion years. Um, and microbes lived everywhere. But then animals evolved and they started disrupting microbial environments, preying on them, scratching them up, and pushing them into restricted environments. So we wanted to study microbial organisms in restricted environments after animals had evolved because we only have restricted environments where microbes might have existed on Mars, and we're only studying restricted environments. So the more we understand these niche environments that are very small scale, the more we might be able to get that picture on Mars. So that was one of the reasons that we chose this area. Yeah. And how much has uh, this work you've been doing sort of factored into the thinking with NASA themselves? I mean, have, have you been coordinating some of this work with them or is this sort of a uh, external to NASA proof of principle to make sure that what they're doing is, is going to measure up? Yeah. So on this particular project, it was um, external to NASA. We didn't collaborate uh, with them on it. We wanted to see um, independently how the com combination of instruments would, would work together. Um, previously, I have done some work looking at the preservation of chemical fossils in hot springs, which was presented uh, to a scientific workshop group as part of the evidence that we should return to Columbia Hills on Mars, which is a fossilized hot spring site or is interpreted to be a fossilized hot spring mm -hmm. site. And that's the site that the Spirit Rover went to. Well, the reason for that is that in the Pilbara 3.5 billion years ago, we have evidence of fossilized hot spring environments with bacteria. So we are starting to think that these areas might be where life started. So now that we know that, we want to go back to these hot spring environments and investigate them again. Mm. So I think, um, I mean, the, the, the activity and the amount of interest in Mars is phenomenal and we see so much of that. What are your thoughts on some of the sort of further out in the solar system moons with uh, especially, you know, sub-ice sub covered ocean scenarios like Enceladus and others um, where there's there seems to be some real interest in the, at the moment if these are liquid oceans that there could be some interesting stuff going on there. A lot harder to get to but um, potentially very interesting. Yeah, that's right. So NASA has a new mission to go to Europa and they're going to start investigating Europa more seriously as a candidate for life. I think that until now, the main limitation to investigating those further off moons was our technology. Mm. You know, once we get to Europa, how do we dig through the ice to actually look at the water? We don't know how thick the ice is. Or if we go to Enceladus, how do we capture dust plumes that are coming off the moon itself to see what the medium inside the planet is, uh, inside the moon is? Um, so I think that now that we have better technology and we're starting to investigate these systems that are further out in our solar system, it's really going to expand our view 
of what a habitable world really is and really help us understand where life can exist and what those constraints are. Yeah. I mean, it must be interesting for you as a PhD student because many of these these missions are ones that people spend almost, you know, a big portion of their life or at least their career, sometimes 15, 20 years working on them. I mean, if you look at the New Horizons probe with with um, with Pluto, you know, people have been on that for over a decade. How, how long do you think uh, you'll be working in this particular area, of, you know, with, with the Perseverance um, rover and so forth, given that the timeframes that these things operate over? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. You know, you could work on a project for 10 years and then the project never launches Mm, or, you know, something could happen while it's trying to land. So the Perseverance rover should create a lot of work for a lot of people for a long time because once the rover launches, it's got a mission on Mars, which um, I think it's projected to last for about a year, but the rovers have always lasted longer than they were meant to. I mean, Spirit famously lasted for 15 years. Mm. Um, which is a very long time for a rover to be operating alone on Mars. And so it really depends on the nature of the mission itself as as to how long it could last. And now that more space agencies are sending rovers to Mars, like the European Space Agency, and other space agencies are interested in sending missions to Mars, to the moon and to other places. I mean, the Japanese um, space agency JAXA has famously sampled rocks from asteroids and brought them back to mm, earth yeah um yeah so there's there's so many avenues for people to be involved i think in more than one project at the moment yeah and to really share that knowledge around so that we can get the best results possible well bonnie it's a super fun area to work in it's great talking to you i i, I think you've, you've done well you're, you're clearly outside up there somewhere in in um, in sydney and it's been fantastic talking about this i think there's going to be a lot of excitement about this particular mission especially once it gets there and it starts looking around and the idea of actually bringing some martian soil back to earth is, is fantastic thanks so much for being our guest today on triple r good luck with your phd Thank you for having me, Shane. You're welcome. That was Bonnie Teese from the University of New South Wales. Folks, we're going to take a break for some more music and we'll be back with our next guest in just a few minutes. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein the Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Now, I was hoping we would speak to one of the psychologists from the University of Melbourne now, but it looks like they're not on the line. It was an interesting topic, though, which uh, we may get to at another time. So, until our next guest comes along, I wanted to inform you of a few of the things that are going on in science over the next few weeks. One thing that is of particular interest is one of the missions coming up from SpaceX. So, some of you would be aware that uh, Elon Musk, who comes across a little bit crazy these days, but uh, has been investing heavily after making a buckle of money on PayPal some years ago in commercial space launch vehicles. Now, this comes off the back, of course, of several disasters in the the, um, NASA programs with the space shuttles, where two of the space shuttles, both Challenger and the Columbia, were lost, and all of the crews of those uh, craft lost at the same time. Uh, some years back. And NASA was facing a period where essentially they were not going to have a launch vehicle capable of getting things to the International Space Station or servicing many of the satellites that we have in orbit. And the real push came for some commercial vendors to start working on uh, rockets that could do this for us. 
In the interim, of course, uh, the Russians have been using their Soyuz craft, which essentially are the same intercontinental ballistic missile type craft that were used in the in the 60s, to take both uh, crew and supplies up to the International Space Station, which, uh, whether you're aware of this or not, this is a station that can't be left unmanned for a period of time. So it should say uncrewed. It's a, it's a scenario where uh, you need to constantly have people up there. And you may remember some years ago, we interviewed uh, an astronaut named Terry Wirtz. He was one of the astronauts that was stuck up there for quite a period and Terry's an interesting person to talk to about social isolation, if you're wondering about that, because uh, one of the things that was uh, going on at the time was one of those Russian Soyuz spacecraft actually exploded on the launch pad. And that was the one that uh, later would have been going up and getting uh, a relief crew onto the International Space Station and bringing Terry Wirtz and his colleagues back down to Earth. They couldn't do that for some time, and they had to wait until the Soyuz craft was cleared for launch. They, they were stuck up there for a protracted period period. Around this time, it seemed pretty evident that uh, you know, there needed to be alternatives. And SpaceX has done some very interesting things over the last few years. Some of you may remember that they had quite a number of failures. I think their first three launches were all failures, um, one after another, exploding you know, near or on the launch pad. But since then, they've done some pretty spectacular things. And you may remember some vision, if you haven't seen it, that's worth looking this up, where they managed to launch two rockets at about the same time and then land them almost simultaneously. So these are the used rocket components. After they've delivered their payload, they come back down to Earth and they do a controlled landing on a predetermined uh, uh, sort of landing pad. And there's a great bit of footage, which I always thought looked a bit like something out of the Thunderbirds, where these two rockets actually manage to come down and almost land simultaneously, not that far apart from one another, in an incredible demonstration of control. Now, you might say, what's the big deal about that? And it's interesting, we were just talking to Bonnie from New South Wales about the idea of landing a new rover on Mars. Because of the really thin atmosphere on Mars, you do need to, just as with the moon, use some sort of rocketry system in order to slow your descent and land effectively on on the red planet. So if you can't do that, uh, you can't land on Mars full stop. That's not going to work. And we, uh, we've seen with the, the rocketry capabilities of SpaceX, they have been working very hard on the idea of being able to reuse these rockets. And part of that is also a testing phase for whether or not these rockets will be able to carefully and in a controlled way land at specific sites on Mars, which of course is Elon Musk's uh, big uh, hope is that we'll be able to set up some sort of uh, adventure over on Mars that uh, will one day many of us will be able to go to. Probably not all of us, but uh, a few of us. The interesting thing happening this week, though, is that the International Space Station is very, very um, specific about who can deliver goods and personnel to that space station. So the Russians have been able to do it for some time. But SpaceX, to this point, has not managed to deliver a crew to the space station, only supplies. And in fact, uh, long-time listeners of the show may remember we had one of the guidance engineers from SpaceX on this program years ago, and he told a great story about how the first time they went uh, near the station, they were essentially, they had to hold at a distance of about a kilometer from the station because NASA and the station crew didn't want them getting anywhere near that station because of the potential danger if they stuffed it up. 
And so they were very specific about that. But this week, um, on uh, Wednesday, the 27th of May, that's a US Pacific Standard Time at about 1.33 p.m., they will be launching a SpaceX uh, rocket that will have a relief crew for the International Space Station. So this is a pretty big deal because this will be the first time that SpaceX actually puts uh, people up to the International Space Station. So a big change in the way uh, space is being explored. And hopefully we will be moving from this, uh, you know, quickly into the you know, ongoing exploration of the moon and Mars. But it is a new game now, people. The uh, commercial space industry is well and truly up and running. And SpaceX is not there for fun. They're there to make money. Uh, they are commercial. And this is uh, a big part of that because they will now be getting, well, they already are, but they'll be getting even more revenue from the international community for helping to keep the International Space Station running, which is a which is a pretty big achievement for any organization. Uh, SpaceX, unlike many of its competitors, it seems, uh, and this is probably why they had so many failures at the start, had to essentially start constructing many of their things from scratch. They didn't reuse a lot of the old uh, rocketry components from you know, decades ago. They started again, which has given them some advantages, but of course put them back in time quite a way as well. So we'll see this week whether or not uh, Long Musk's uh, company, SpaceX, is up to delivering a crew, hopefully safely, to the International Space Station, which will be a pretty big deal. Um, and hopefully get us further on their way to the pit stop, back to the moon, and then eventually on to Mars. And this will be something that we won't see NASA doing on their own anymore. It will be a combined effort, um, just as we, we may not be aware of this, but it was always a combined effort back in the 60s. There are many commercial companies that made the components of the Apollo uh, and and its precursor programs uh, in order to get to the moon in the first first case. So, yeah, a lot going on there. Some interesting stuff. The other thing I wanted to mention quickly is some interesting work that's been done by a group of scientists looking at some of the seasonal fish migrations across the deep sea ocean floor. One of the things that we're very aware of is migrations that happen on land, whether they be birds or otherwise, but we're not very knowledgeable about the sort of migrations that happen uh, below the ocean. And there has been some a number of studies now of this, but one in particular done using a particular... Uh, a system called the Deep Ocean Environmental Long-Term Observatory System, which has a number of observatories or small camera systems and so forth set at a depth of about 1,400 metres. And they monitor uh, fishes, uh, fish as they go by these observatories. And they were collecting data for about seven years in order to see some of these migrations. And this has been run by a group from um, the University of Glasgow and um, originally uh, and more recently at the Nova Southeastern University, uh, Rosanna Milligan, and looking at just how many of these fish are actually moving around down there and whether or not there are migration patterns. The data is fairly uh, preliminary at this stage, but they've seen some amazing transitions of, of um, sea creatures across the ocean floor which is something that we expect on land and we're used to seeing on land, but we don't really think of migrations um, in the ocean in the same way. So uh, watch that space with regards to some of these. We'll, we'll talk about this as more data comes in, but some of these migrations are definitely happening not just on land, but also in the ocean. Folks, we're going to take a, a break for a, a bit more music and we'll be back with our final guest, uh, actually our second guest now for, for um, today, um, who's from Monash University. We're going to be talking about transparent solar cells. This sounds like science fiction, but they're getting it uh, happening down there at Monash. It's pretty exciting. And we'll be chatting about that with the key researcher in just a few moments. 
Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. We have our first, uh, sorry, our final guest for today on the line now. Jacek Jasenjak is a professor and director of the Monash Energy Institute um, from Monash University. Jacek, can you hear me? Uh, certainly can. Good to be with you, Shane. Excellent. Now, it's good to talk to you. You, I mean, I saw the information on what you're doing and I, I, I was trying to recall, I think once upon a time we may have interacted or worked in the same building uh, back in the School of Chemistry years ago at University of Melbourne, about 20 years ago. Is that right? Have I got that right? Uh, it could have been. It could have been. And in fact, I, I, I was actually on your show about 10 years ago as a freshly minted, fresh scientist. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I, as as many of my guests on the show will will uh, sort of uh, attest to, if uh, you weren't on the show in the last two hours, I probably forgotten all about it. Um, so, like a hundred or so, you know, I think we've had a hundred guests already this year. It's uh, it's hard to keep track, but I, rem- I I remembered your name, and I was talking to Dr. Ray this morning, and he said, "Oh, I think he worked in in the laboratory of Paul Mulvaney in School of Chemistry." And I said, "Yep, I thought I I thought I remembered him from somewhere." So, well, you have gone far since then, my friend. It's uh, it's very interesting. You're working in this area of semi-transparent solar cells now. First of all, talk us through. Let's talk a little bit about standard solar cells and what the limitations are there, because they're opaque, right? They're silicon-based, so they're they're opaque. That's it. Uh, look, the question is how well, how does a normal solar cell actually function? Um, so it, its role is to absorb as much light, and uh, through that absorption process, it converts that light into positive and negative charges. Mm-hmm. Now, those positive and negative charges are then collected at the electrode. So you can envisage it's like a it's literally like a sandwich where the absorbing material is in the middle. So the role of a very efficient solar cell like silicon is to absorb as much light as possible whilst maintaining that current um, in that in that device. And and there's some optimal levels in terms of how much light needs to be absorbed, but across the visible spectrum, all of it is is ideally absorbed. So silicon does that very well. Um, and it's got a it it's got a limit um, in terms of its absorption properties that is that is in the infrared. So it absorbs the entire visible spectrum. And mm. um, so by definition, those those devices, when they're made to be as efficient as they are, they don't let light through. Now they they are practically limited though, and there's a limit called the Shockley quasar limit, and that's that is imparted on silicon, um, and that limit is uh, puts a practical efficiency limit of about 29% or so for silicon. Uh, but in the in reality, the, the devices uh, that we see on our rooftops um, range from about 15 to 20%, um, and they're opaque. Mm, yeah. So this is where I, I suppose we should just point out the subtle difference here between silicon being what we're talking about for normal uh, solar cells, and as you say, they're opaque, and what we're talking about today is, I'm assuming, silica, which is what we know and, and love uh, so much as normal glass. Um, now that's transparent. How do we how do we move from obviously even the the mindset of hang on if this thing is transparent it means the light is going through it. I need some of that light to be collected by that system in order to convert it into electricity. So how do, how do you go about that? So so the silica part is still used. So that's the glass. In fact, every module that we have on our rooftop uses glass. 
and it's, and it's part of the protecting facade or the, or the, mm. the components of the solar cell. Um, to transform a solar cell into a transparent solar cell or, or a solar window, what we need to do is build the functional component of the solar cell onto the window in such a way that it lets light through. So how do we do that? There's a couple of variations to do that, and I can talk through each of those. The first one is that you actually make a device like silicon, and it doesn't absorb in, in certain regions, but you pattern it on glass. So you have regions that, are, that, are, that don't absorb and regions that absorb, and the amount of light that gets let through is just a ratio of those two components. And then you structure the electrodes such that you collect the light. That's what we call a semi-opaque configuration. Semi-transparent is when we actually use a light absorber where we uh, control the thickness of that light absorber such that we um, allow a certain proportion of the light to actually go through the entire electrode, hmm. th through the entire device. And for that, what we need is we need an electrode on the front and the back of the solar cell that lets light through very, very efficiently whilst being able to control the light transmission through the main absorbing layer. So that's what we call a semi-opaque configuration. So there's two main architectures that can be used. Hmm. And, and which, which one are you working on at the moment at Monash there, Jason? So we're working on both. Uh, the, the work that we have published uh, that, that's in publication at the moment that's getting a little bit of attention um, is on the semi-transparent uh, solar cells where we've used a class of material called perovskites. It's a very uh, efficient solar cell, solar cell material because it converts light um, into electricity without many losses. It can also be thinned out so this is actually very, very interesting for semi-transparent solar cells. You know, a silicon solar cell is of the order of 100 microns. That's two or three times the width of a, of a human hair. Um, these solar cells can be made a 1,000 times, almost a 1,000 times thinner and still operate. And by making them that thin, they actually do absorb a proportion of the light, but then we can controllably let some of the light through. So that's how we can balance the transmission of these devices um, by effectively controlling the thickness of these perovskite layers. Mm. Are there any changes in the sort of strength or capabilities of, of these materials? I mean, if we were to use these, for example, in, you know, high-rise high office buildings where, you know, the, the standard sort of glass is such that no one can throw themselves through it, you know, for obvious safety reasons and so forth, we need, <laughs> we need really big piece, big sheets of glass that are very, very strong and relatively thin. I mean, are you able to make them in, in that sort of fashion with, with, with these requirements? That's, that's, the, that's the goal. Uh, if you look at the, the high-rise window uh, structures, they're typically double-glazed configurations and they're reinforced, so ideally that you don't fall out of the windows, yeah. obviously. Uh, but that actually presents the perfect architecture for embedding a solar cell. So the current systems, they use glazing on one of the windows, and that's to basically cut light but also to moderate the, the heat going in and out of those buildings. So the semi-transparent solar cells can actually supersede those coatings. In fact, they use uh, some of the same electrodes that the current windows use for their heat management system. Mm. So in actual fact, we can start to leverage the existing glass architecture, but just add on, value add into that, um, such that we're now absorbing light in our windows, converting it into electricity, 
versus what current windows do, which is simply to just reflect that light or just to just to absorb it and transform it into heat, which is mm. a complete loss mechanism, yeah, to be honest. Absolutely. Now give us I mean, I'm not sure if you can quickly do some of these calculations for me, but if I if I had a, a piece of glass about the size of a car windscreen, for example, um, choose whatever thickness you like, what what sort of uh, sort of energy levels could I be generating from something like that using this technology? Because I have a sort of I have a feel for something about that big on, on my roof in terms of the current solar panels. Um, you know, maybe something around five 500 watts or something but um what would that look like in terms of in terms of these in a way that i could still see through it because i guess that's it partially transparent yeah so so look it's it's a good question and it depends on the level of transparency that you need uh so for some buildings for instance in, in a building sector um you know those transparency levels can range anywhere from um, 80%, which is more standard glass, to, to 10%, mm. right? So it really depends. For windows, for for car windows, for instance, that would depend on the level of, of shading that you would want. But um, for for the types of devices that we're working on at the moment, a typical, let's say your, your conventional solar, uh, solar cell on your roof, uh, one of those panels is about 300 watts, okay? okay. Yep. Uh, 300 watts, and, and that's spread over about two metres squared. So overall, that gives you an efficiency, give or take, of about 15%. Now, the, the types of devices that we're making now have a conversion efficiency of about 17% at uh, 90% absorption or 10% transmittance. That obviously reduces as we make the cells more um, transparent. But, um, but uh, that, that gives us a, an approximate uh, ratio of um, two, one, one um, solar panel for about two meters square worth of windows mm. of power, which is pretty remarkable, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. And the, the reason why it's actually remarkable, and I think this is important to note, you know, people, we, we as a human race are very creative. And um, we have, as, as humans, have developed solar windows before. But the problem's been that uh, the efficiency ratings have been about five to six times smaller. And that's when things become a little bit problematic because you're not generating enough electricity to justify the installation, mm. whereas now you're effectively competing with silicon solar cells on your rooftop whilst giving you extra functionality, and that's transparency. Yeah. Jason, uh, industry must be, you know, just sort of backing trucks of money up to the Monash front gate for this kind of research at the moment. This seems like a, this is a, a tide-changing technology relative to what we're using, and it just brings solar power into so many more spaces where you wouldn't otherwise have them. Absolutely. Look, we're getting a lot of interest, certainly. And the next step for this technology is to is to understand the commercial strategy. Uh, windows are a tough area to be in. We're actually working with uh, Viridian Glass on this project. So that's Australia's largest glass manufacturer. Mm, great. And, and the CSIRO. So both of them are, are exceptional partners to be involved in and they help us to bridge what we're doing in the lab at a university level um, to translation um, at larger scales. So I think we mm. have that right partnership um, in place. Although, uh, you know, the question of commercialization is a difficult one, uh, regardless of where you are. So this yeah. is something we're going to have to work through. So this is interesting. Uh, years ago, years and years ago, decades ago now, I said, you know, Australia could lead the world in, in solar power 
and we could become one of the big exporters of solar technology and it never happened you know we gave it up um looks like we have a second chance so hopefully you can um you can make this work because it's uh there's a big opportunity there and and this is something that, uh, as as we say, you know, we'd go into so many different spaces where we don't currently have this technology. So, you know, cars, office windows, all those areas. And it's like, you know, people are working on painting rooftops with this sort of technology. But but this is this is another area again. I mean, where where we wherever you see glass, you could be generating power. That seems like a huge advantage. So, yeah. Yeah, and to be honest, um, this this is a part of something I think that's going to be a trend, and that mm. trend is to make active areas of passive surfaces at the moment. So a building shouldn't be considered as a building. It should be as a live interactive machine almost. And this just enables that realisation of sustainable, self-powered homes that enable us to be efficient and and and, and progressive going forward. Yeah. Well, Jason, it's super. It's uh, super exciting research. Hopefully, it will go in the direction it seems to be going, and you'll get some success with the industry partnerships and so forth. And we'll see this being something within maybe five or ten years that we can we can buy. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein. And Many Gago. thanks, Shane. Appreciate the time. Great okay. to speak to you. Folks, uh, Jacek there is from the uh, is the director of the Monash Energy Institute at Monash University. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein the Go Go today. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you again. There's so many people wanting to come on the show at the moment. It's incredibly, uh, in it really enthuses us to do more and more science communication for you because um, all of these researchers in Melbourne and Australia are so fantastic. We'll chat to you again soon. Thanks for listening, Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.